0: Welcome to our Narrative Medicine Rounds of October. Um, first, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Sunny Birguo. I am a bone healer and adjunct professor in the Master's Department of Narrative Medicine. I am also adjunct, um, or excuse me, lecturer of spirituality and healthcare for the IP seminars right here at the Medical Center. So it's a pleasure to be here this evening to welcome our speaker. Dr. Farah Jasmine Griffin. So just a little bit of why we are here and how we come here once a month to gather. Uh, Narrative Medicine Rounds are monthly events. They're held on the first Wednesday of each month during the academic year. So we're hosted by the Division of Narrative Medicine in the Department of Medical Humanities and Ethics at Columbia University Irvine Medical Center. So we are here because we connect narrative medicine with artists, authors, creative thought leaders to join us to share their work in relation to narrative medicine. So before I introduce our illustrious speaker, I'd like to mention the next two narrative medicine rounds that we have for November and December. So November rounds will be hearing from novelist Deborah Levy, Hypochondria and History, Searching for Story, and this is going to be in a different location, so please note this, it's at Alumni Auditorium, and that is at uh, 650 West 116 or, sorry, 168th Street, right down the street. And our December Narrative Medicine Rounds is with our colleague, Professor Maura Spiegel, writing a biography, The Promise and Parallel of Telling Someone Else's Life. So, this month's rounds is particularly special to host um, for many reasons, um, but mostly as I think back as to what we will be lost and also gained on August 15th, or excuse me, August 5th, 20, 2019. We lost a great giant, a global phenomenon, and a speaker to everyone. In the recent documentary film Tony Morrison: The Pieces I Am, Dr. Farah Jasmine Griffin is heard saying, "If there's life on Mars, they are reading Tony Morrison to find out what it means to be human." So, please join me in welcoming Dr. Farah Jasmine Griffin and the William B. Ross Ford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and the inaugural chair of the African American and African Diaspora Studies Department and the director of the Institute for Research in African American Studies here at Columbia University. She has published widely on issues in gender, feminism, jazz, and cultural politics. Griffin is the author of Who Set You Flowing? The African American Migration Narrative Beloved Sisters and Loving Friends, Letters from Rebecca Primus of Royal Oak, Maryland, and Abby Brown of Hartford, Connecticut, 1854, 1868. If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery, In Search of Billie Holiday, and co-author with Celine Washington of Clawing at the Limits of Cool, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, and The Greatest Jazz Collaboration Ever, Her most recent book is here this evening with us for all of you to purchase, is Harlan Nocturne, Woman Artists and Progressive Politics During World War II. Her essays and articles have appeared in essence, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Nation, the Guardian, Harper Bazaar, Art Forum, and other publications. She's also a frequently radio commentator on political and cultural issues. So, please give us a warm welcome to Dr. Griffin. Thank you.
1: Good evening. evening. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. Um, This is such a beautiful space. I don't get to talk in spaces this beautiful, so I thought I needed to stop and acknowledge that. I want to thank um, Dr. Rita Sharon for inviting me to deliver this talk as part of Narrative Medicine Rounds. I want to thank Donna and Sun for everything they've done to help me um, get here and help us all to get here. Um, and I'm really grateful for this opportunity to share some preliminary thinking on Toni Morrison's exploration of the relationship between care, healing, and the possibilities of justice. Um, What I share with you this evening is part of a larger project that considers the ways that African-American writers have explored notions of mercy, grace, justice, and other such values. And while none of the authors I consider posit a system of ethics per se, all of their work bears witness to those ethics that emerge from the communities about which they write. And among the writers, Toni Morrison seems the most committed to and consistent in presenting the ethical dimensions of black life in the United States. Consequently, she is central to um, this project, both as subject and as inspiration. And I can say um, that the same is true for her role in my life as well. Toni Morrison is most often thought of as a writer, Whose creative project has sought to call our attention to and to dismantle racist language, to present alternative meanings and worldviews as posited in the languages of the marginalized and the dispossessed communities who are most often the subject of her fiction. She has done so by focusing on the ways that those communities are shaped by and respond to white supremacy without centering white people or writing in view of what she calls the white gaze. But in later years of her life, she began to emphasize that her project also included an effort to try and find a language for goodness. Literary language, she insisted, is most often devoted to evil and corruption. In lectures at Harvard and Santa Cruz, in a public conversation at Cornell, as well as a recently published essay in the New York Times Book Review, she stressed this aspect of her literary project, saying, quote, writing and trying to find a language for goodness is all I have ever done in the novel. From her earliest work, Morrison portrayed what I refer to here as an ethic of care, that governs the best of the communities about which she writes. I borrow the term ethic of care from feminist theorists such as Carol Gilligan and others who called our attention to the ways people within communities depend upon one another and the ways that the most vulnerable members of communities deserve special consideration and attention. According to this mode of thinking, care is an ethical issue that can and should govern the way we behave in community. While Gilligan has been criticized for uh, the essentialist implications of her theory um, by claiming that women act and behave in certain ways that emphasize care and compassion, I nonetheless find the notion of an ethics of care useful when divorced from a notion of inherent gender differences. As such, I find it especially useful for discussing one of the primary projects of Morrison's fiction. Throughout her oeuvre, Morrison's concern with an ethics of care develops further into explorations of those efforts and the pursuit of justice, an exploration that finds its fullest expression in her late fiction. And here I'm thinking of the novel Home from 2011 and God Help the Child from 2015. She writes, quote, over time, these last 40 years, I have become more and more invested in making sure acts of goodness, however casual, or deliberate, or misapplied, or blessed, produce languages. language, even when not articulated, such acts must have a strong impact on the novel's structure and on its mean, meaning. Expressions of goodness are never trivial or incidental in my writing. I want them to have life changing properties and to illuminate decisively the moral questions embedded in narrative. End quote. These expressions of goodness, I think, are most often guided by an ethics of care. So, first, I'll ask you to join me or indulge me as we go through a brief tour through two earlier works that will help us appreciate the development of her thought in this regard. While Gilligan saw the ethics of care as distinct from an ethics of justice, I think Morrison asked us to consider the relationship between the two. Readers of Morrison may recall that very early, in the early pages of her first novel, The Bluest Eye, published in 1970, the narrator, the girl, Claudia, recalls having a cold as a child. At first, she thinks her mother is angry at her for having gotten ill. And then later, she realizes that her mother is angry at the illness itself. And this is a point which Morrison will elaborate later on in later works. But looking back, Claudia reconsiders um, what she felt as a child. And she says, quote, But was it really like that? As painful as I remember, Love, thick and dark as alga syrup, eased up into the cracked window. I could smell it, taste it, sweet, musty, with an edge of wintergreen in its base, everywhere in the house. It coated my chest, along with the salve, and then, when the flannel came undone in my sleep, the clear, sharp curves of air outlined its presence on my throat, and in the night, when my coughing was dry and tough, Feet padded into the room, hands repinned the flannel, readjusted the quilt, and rested a moment on my forehead. So when I think of autumn, I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. Here, love is equated with care, and care is life-giving and life-affirming. The language here is elevated and sensual. The metaphors are quotidian yet rich. Alaga syrup is thick and syrupy sweet, a treat that turns common bread or biscuits into something, a meal that's more like a dessert. (laughs) To claim something good and loving as dark is notable in this novel, which reveals the destructive nature of white supremacy that claims darkness for all things evil and bad. Here, love itself is thick and dark. The young girls who are recipients of this kind of care, Claudia and Frida, especially during times of illness, learn to give it freely to others in need. When the foster child, Picola comes to live with them, they tell us, quote, she came with nothing, no little paper bag with the other dress or nightgown or two pairs of whitish cotton bloomers. She just appeared with a white woman and sat down, end quote. The abandoned child doesn't even have a black mother or aunt to accompany her. Claudia's family, the McTeers, quietly take her in, feed her, give her shelter, a place to sleep, maternal and sisterly care. Claudia says, quote, Frida and I stopped fighting each other and concentrated on our guests, trying to keep her from feeling outdoors. The two sisters agree to take care of Piccola. They enact an ancient hospitality by treating their guests well, making her comfortable, giving her a sense of home, in this case in order to counter the trauma she has experienced. They make her laugh and they feed her their favorite treat, graham crackers and milk. They ask nothing in return. The young girls grow in their effort to comfort and care for Percola. They are nurtured in love and governed by an ethic of care. Unfortunately, the McTeer home is the only place where Percola receives such care. Outside of that space, she falls victim to white supremacist notions of beauty and value, which is so internalized by her community that she becomes their victim first, and then ultimately the victim of the most heinous crime, incest at the hands of her father. There is no call for justice for Picola. The crimes against her go unpunished. The care given her not enough to address the causes and the extent of her trauma. The bluest eye makes no mention of the pursuit of justice for Procola. And by novel's end, she is utterly defeated and destroyed. By mid-career, Morrison begins to suggest that there may be a relationship between an ethics of care and a pursuit of justice. In her third novel, Song of Solomon, she explores the meaning of and quest for justice. Throughout the text, she is interested in the nature of justice and its relationship to vengeance and history Retribution and Repair. Significantly, in this novel, most of the discussions about justice take place between the novel's men, especially in all male spaces. The first most explicit discussion takes place in a barbershop. The narrator tells us, quote, a young boy had been found stomped to death in Sunflower County, Mississippi. There were no questions about who stomped him. His murderers had boasted freely, and there were no question about the motive. The boy had whistled at a white woman, refused to deny he had slept with others, and was a northerner visiting the South. His name was Till. The statement does a great deal of work. It declares the matter of factness of the murder. It is spoken like it might be a common occurrence even. There is no mystery to be solved. The culprits are known. They feel neither remorse nor guilt. In fact, they are boastful. They do not fear arrest, trial, or conviction. The passage ends with a brief sentence, his name was Till. This situates the narrative temporally. The dialogue that follows occurs in the shadow of Emmett Till's murder in August 1955. His death offers a rich opportunity for the men gathered in the barbershop. The conversation that ensues illustrates the diversity of opinion and ideology in the black community. The more conservative speaker, almost blames the teenager for provoking his own death. His open defiance of the rules and norms of governing contact between black men and white women constitute a refusal to stay within the confines of the Jim Crow South, that the Jim Crow South sets for black people. Another man counters by noting that Till was murdered for daring to act like a man. The end of the conversation leaves us with a central question. Is it possible to be a black man in the United States and what constitutes masculinity is survival an act of cowardice. No matter their politics, each knows that his black skin constitutes guilt in the eyes of whites and that they are vulnerable to any vigilante white without recourse to justice. The very arbitrariness of white power is what makes it so frightening. At any given time, in any given place, they too might share Till's fate. Guitar, a militant young black man, a member of a vigilante group that seeks eye for eye justice, articulates an argument based in historical truth of justice denied, and this is what makes it both compelling and frightening. He says, we poor people, milkman. I work in an auto plant. The rest of us barely eat out a living. Where's the money, the state, the country, to finance our justice. You say Jews try their catches in court. Do we have a court? Is there one courthouse in one city in the country where a jury would convict them? There are places right now where a Negro still can't testify against a white man, where the judge, the jury, the court are legally bound to ignore anything the Negro has to say. What that means is that a black man is a victim of a crime only when a white man says he is. Only then. Reading this in an era where the murders of Trayvon Martin, Alton Sterling, Mike Brown, and too many more walk free asserts the ongoing truth of Guitar's assertion. Morrison demonstrates this persistence of injustice through time and place, past and present, north and south. The only justice that her male characters can imagine is vengeance, but most of them advocate survival over revenge. But Morrison in this novel offers another possibility, in the figure of an elderly servant named Cersei, a midwife who lives in the ruins of a plantation mansion and is the subversive agent who undermines everything her white employers lived and died for. Because this is a Morrison novel, we are asked to believe that she is well over 100 years old. (laughs) And her face is a map of wrinkles. And after the murder of their father, Macon Dead Senior, Cersei, who is a servant in the butler household, rescues, hides, and takes care of his two children, Macon Dead Junior and Pilate. She takes them from the butlers, the white family, wealth, made by slavery, and then by stealing land of the freedmen, to care for the orphan children of one of their victims. She feeds them, provides them shelter and love, hides them from harm, and then sends them her way on their way. She is kind, but not coddling. She, quote, told them to stay with her until they could figure out what to do, some place for them to go. Their problems are her problems. She would bring them food to wash, food, water to wash in, and she would empty the slop jar. She enacts an ethic of care that helps ensure their well-being and their ability to become self-sufficient. So many years later, when Milkman Dead, Macon's son, seeks out Circe, he's only guided by her on a search for his family's history and consequently his own identity. Circe is a healer, a nurturer, a protector. She is skilled in the use of medicinal herbs and other natural remedies. Milkman thinks healer, deliverer, in other words, she would have been the head nurse at Mercy Hospital had Mercy Hospital had black nurses. As with Homer's Circe, Morrison's serves Milkman as an escort, a guide to the spirits of the dead, in that she fills the story of Macon the first and his Native American wife sing, and she sends him further south where he will encounter his ancestors. She is healer, conjure woman, and she is also justice seeker. She helps to bring a long-term sense of justice into being. It is not justice for those who were the immediate recipients of harm, nor does it punish those who caused the harm, but it helps to create a more just society for the progeny of both. Morrison Searcy is a keeper of the past, that through which Milkman must go to reach his ancestors, his history, and himself. She marks the path. With their large column mansion, the butlers laid claim to a classical past, but Morrison through Circe assures that it is the enslaved whose roots are more ancient than Eden and whose progeny will reach into the present. In naming Circe for Homer's bewitching seductress, Morrison calls attention to the relationship between that text and her own and in so doing she calls into question the quest of the Odyssey with all of its plunder, booty, Traffic in women, slavery, and seeking a return to reestablish patriarchy. She juxtaposes this version of a quest narrative with a quest that will yield a suppressed history that will narrate the lives of those who have been victims of the West, and thoroughly question the patriarchy by insisting on a reconstructed masculinity at the Quest Inn. She explains, "Quote: They loved this place. Loved it. They loved it." Stole for it, lied for it, killed for it, but I'm the only one left. Everything in this world they live for will crumble and rot. What does not rot on its own, she will allow the dogs to destroy. And she says, I want to see it all go, make sure it does go, and that nobody fixes it up. There will be no romantic plantation tours at the Butler Plantation. Circe does not act out of a love of whiteness or out of loyalty, but neither does she act out of revenge. She lives for a patient sense of justice, a kind of divine retribution, and for the return of the black sun. She gains pleasure, not by killing, but by watching that which was created rot, by watching a monument to history decay from within and bearing witness to its ruin. In the Song of Solomon, Morrison explores the potential of retributive justice, which she rejects, in favor of a long-term divine justice toward which the universe bends. By the time we get to the late fiction, especially her penultimate novel, Home, she returns to an exploration of the relationship between an ethics of care and its potential for achieving a kind of restorative justice. I should say here that Morrison does not represent restorative justice as a process, but instead suggests that this might be a guiding principle of a society governed by an ethic of care. There is nothing that can make up for the crimes against her victimized characters. At best, they can learn how to live, how to survive, how to be healed, not cured, how to go on and do some good in the world. In her model, the offender is not reconciled with the victim, but the victim is cared for and embraced by the community. And witnessing this, the victim's brother, who in another instance has been an offender, must come to terms with the trauma he has caused and rather than continue to be paralyzed by it, instead do something ethically productive, indeed do something good. So as a result, at the novels in, a victim and a victimizer are transformed. Set in the 1950s United States during the height of the McCarthy era, home is the story of a Korean war veteran named Frank Money. He lives in the Pacific Northwest and he's suffering from post-traumatic stress. Frank receives word that his younger sister C is in harm's way in Georgia and he sets out on a cross-country trek to rescue her. C has been working as a domestic servant in the home of a white doctor, Beauregard Scott, and his wife. Unbeknownst to C, Scott is also a eugenicist who, quote, occasionally performed abortions on society ladies, end quote. But most importantly for our purposes, like J. Marion Sims, he sets out to improve the speculum speculum, and in the process mutilates a number of poor black women. C quickly becomes victim to Scott's experimentation and her suffering is so extreme that the house's other domestic reaches out to Frank and aids him when he comes to rescue his sister. Frank carries his baby sister in his arms until they are able to hire a hack to take them to the small town of their childhood, Lotus, Georgia, where he hands her over to Miss Ethel and a band of local women who set out to heal C. Morrison writes, quote, once they knew she had been working for a doctor, the eye rolling and tooth sucking was enough to make their scorn clear. At no point does anyone call the police, nor do they issue a complaint against a medical board. These are not options that will do C any good. They won't render justice in her case. Instead, the women go about treating her illness and then helping her to heal and become a fully grown woman amongst them. At first, they tend to her bodily wounds. When Frank first takes C to Miss Ethel, the older woman, quote, pulled up C's uniform and parted her legs. Have mercy, she whispered, she's on fire, end quote. The women of the community take turns providing medicinal herbs and potions for her, and the final stage of her healing included, quote, being sun-smacked, which meant spending at least one hour a day with her legs spread open to the blazing sun. Each woman agreed that that embrace would rid her of any remaining womb sickness, quote. This they see not only as giving her access to the healing powers of the sun, but also as providing a, quote, permanent cure, the kind beyond human power, quote. The ten days exposed to the sun is a ritual, a transition, an absorption of energy to combat evil and harm, and at the end of two months in her care, Frank notes, quote, C was different. Two months surrounded by country women who loved me had changed her. The women handled sickness as though it were an affront, an illegal invading braggart who needed whipping. They didn't waste their time or the patience with sympathy, and they met the tears of the suffering with resigned contempt, end quote. Like the caregiver in the bluest eye, so too do these women confront illness as an enemy they must vanquish. Their care is without sentiment, and it certainly holds no pity. As she heals from their potions and food, they, quote, change tactics. They bring her embroidery and crocheting, and finally, when she's ready, they invite her into their quilting circle. They incorporate her and teach her, quote, laziness was more than intolerable to them. It was inhuman. You had to stay busy. And finally, when she is healed to their liking, Miss Ethel tells her, and I quote, Look to yourself. You're free. Nothing and nobody is obliged to save you but you. Seed your own land. you young and a woman and there are serious limitations in both, but you're a person too. Don't let some trifling boyfriend and certainly no evil doctor decide who you are. That's slavery. Somewhere inside of you is that free person I'm talking about. Locate her. And let her do some good in the world. In the essay Goodness, which was published weeks following Morrison's death in the New York Times Magazine, Morrison says she identifies the woman's work to heal C as an instance of innate group compassion. She asserts it was important to me to give that compassion voice and in so doing, to mark it significant and worthy of our attention, to highlight this act of goodness. The women's ethic of care gives C herself transformed, wounded but standing strong. The doctor's experiments have rendered her infertile, we learn, and as with many black and poor women in the South, she has been sterilized without her knowledge or her consent. She carries the burden of that loss within her and yet she leaves the women stronger, economically self-sufficient, no longer in need of her brother's rescuing. Frank notices, quote, This sea was not the girl who trembled at the slightest touch of the real and the vicious world, nor was she the 15-year-old who would run off with the first boy who asked her, and she was not the household help who believed whatever happened to her while drugged was a good idea because a white coat said so. Frank didn't know what took place during those weeks at Miss Ethel's house, surrounded by those women with the scene at all eyes. But they delivered unto him a sea who would never again need his hand over her eyes or his arms to stop her murmuring bones. End quote. In home, there can be no justice for what Dr. Scott has taken from sea. In fact, it is unlikely that what he even did to her counted as a crime at the time. In her recent Intimate Justice, The Black Female Body and the Body Politic, political theorist Shatima Threadcraft reminds us that black women who suffered forced sterilization at the hands of the state are largely responsible for the shift in feminist language from calling for a right to abortion to calling for reproductive rights. So pervasive was the practice of sterilization, forced sterilization, that it became a commonplace and was nicknamed a Mississippi appendectomy. And it was legal. When one of the victims, Elaine Riddick, finally seeks justice 43 years later, Threadcraft wonders, what in this instance does justice require? The project of intimate justice, she reminds us, is still incomplete. There is no movement demanding justice for Morrison C., Just a community of women who healed her wounds, teach her how to incorporate her physical and emotional scars into the woman she has become and send her off to do some good in the world. They incorporate her into their community, hold not just the doctor but the whole medical establishment accountable and vow to do all they can to keep themselves and those for who they care out of any entanglement with doctors, hospitals, and the like. They model a kind of behavior and ethical practice that lay the foundation for restorative justice. They seek not to incorporate her victimizer because to them he is pure evil. And yet, their community can and does offer healing to those who have victimized others. As we learn, part of Frank's mental trauma is a result of his own horrific action during his time in Korea. He is broken from the guilt he bears. But returning to Lotus, To rescue his sister, an act of brotherly love and goodness restores him as well. Before returning home, he sees the world in black and white. But once there, once he has delivered his sister, he notices, quote, it was so bright, brighter than he remembered. He notes marigolds and dahlias, crimson, purple, pink, and china blue. He says, had those trees always been this deep green? Clarity. An appreciation of the world's beauty returned to him after he cares for his sister, and he risks himself to save her after he acts out of love for her. Restorative justice advocate Dr. Fania Davis, building upon Dr. Martin Luther King, says, quote, "Justice is love correcting that which stands against love." She asks, "How do we heal from structural and interpersonal trauma? Healing is necessary." stop the cycle of harm, healing individuals as well as communities, Morrison has suggested that the very act of putting stories of suffering on display is necessary for the acquisition of justice. Restorative justice seeks to offer repair. As a form, the novel is a place that raises questions about the possibilities and the goals of justice. It allows us to imagine what a society governed by an ethics of care, a society devoted to restoring and repairing those who have been harmed might look like. It is not easy. It does not offer the possibility of a cure, but it encourages healing. The scar is still there. It becomes part of the new person who is scarred, but not broken, who is guided by, treated with love and care and who can go on living productive lives devoted to goodness and the ceasing Ceasing a cycle cycle of harm. In a joint interview with her sister Fania, the activist philosopher Angela Davis says, Quote, I think that restorative justice is a really important dimension of the process of living the way we want to live in the future, embodying it. We have to imagine the kind of society we want to inhabit. We can't simply assume that somehow magically we're going to create a new society in which there will be new human beings. No, we have to begin that process of creating the society we want to inhabit right now, End quote. I think, in part, this is the work of the novel, especially in Morrison's hands. Her late fiction imagines worlds that were and in so doing provides a template for what might be. In the case of Home, and to some extent, God Help the Child, her last novel, it is a template for a just society guided by principles of love and care. Interestingly, in Morrison's case, achieving justice is secondary even to the acquisition of self-knowledge. A satisfactory or good ending for me, she says, is when the protagonist learns something vital and morally insightful that she or he did not know at the beginning. I read this and I wonder if the acquisition of self-knowledge having learned something morally insightful might not be the end result of a process of restorative justice. By novel's end, both Frank and C stand like the tree with which Morrison closes the novel, a sweet bay with olive green leaves split down the middle. The final page, contains a poem in the voice of Frank. It seems a good place for us to close as well. She writes, I stood there a long while, staring at that tree. It looked so strong, so beautiful, hurt right down the middle, but alive and well. See, touch my shoulder, lightly. Frank, yes, come on brother. Let's go home. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. you. This was just amazing.
0: Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, The tree and how... I don't know if this is not, <laughs> the tree. Um, I just love Morrison. She always uses ways in which to bring us back into a space of being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that tree is is what I'm I'm left with as well. Um, if we have any questions, um, we'd like to have the audience ask them.
1: And is this yeah. working? Oh, okay. Would you like to I here. Uh, okay.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> so I'm interested.
2: So I, I'm just I, <laughs> so I'm interested in this idea of language for goodness, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that, especially in a time where right now where language is being hurled mm-hmm. right at people in ways um, divisiveness and all kinds of things, and so I'm I'm just curious about your reflections on how we might think about. Morrison's call to us in many ways, right? To come outside of that. And so just maybe some tidbits on how we might think about that, given many of us work in places where (laughs) divisiveness and Mm -hmm. things are happening every day. So I'm just sort of curious about that.
1: Yeah, no, I I think you're right. And I think that, um, you know, if you look at both the later novels, I mean, I think it's there all the way throughout her body of work, but when she started talking you know, in the last, I would say, maybe five to eight years, when she began to talk about her work, she emphasized the good, right, I mean, and, and how literary language is often used um, to emphasize evil, right, and even the things we like in movies, and that when we're confronted with goodness, we don't know what to do with it. And so it made me become especially attentive to goodness in her work, but also looking for it every day, Looking for it in our encounters with each other in the language that we use, um, if it you know when does it appear on social media, even like what what does a language highlighting goodness look like? And I think that for those last um, interviews and papers and then that essay that was in the New York Times, it's really a kind of parting gift to us. Mm-hmm. Right, um, that in this time when we so we're so bereft of a language of goodness, to not only look for it where it exists, but to create it and to insist upon it. And I think it's part of that um, sort of world-making project—the world we want to live in. But I think you're right. You know, there's also a collection coming out soon. She gave um, lectures at Harvard about goodness. And I think that the piece that was in the New York Times will be reprinted there. And then there are a lot of scholars, primarily um, theologians and philosophers, responding to that. So it should be out within a year. I think it's right there.
3: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for a, a lovely discussion. and analysis and how things work. My question was, um, in your uh, final analysis, you said that C went home to find that enclave of healing. What happens if home is not a safe place? Yeah. How
1: can we cultivate communities for people who uh, don't have a place to call their own? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, you know, because I think that... um, Home is also something that she thought a lot about and there's um, I think home is something that is constructed I mean in The Bluest Eye, Cola's home is not a safe space, it's where she is victimized and violated right? and that um, she's welcomed into the home of others um, and where it's most apparent is in um, Morrison's novel Paradise where you have a group of people who, you know, black people who create an all-black town um, and that women for the most part are safe in that town. Um, Women who live there who are part of the tribe are safe and they can walk the streets late at night. Women who are unconventional are not safe, right? And they create another home. They create an alternative home um, in, in the space, believe it or not, of an old convent and it, you know, it's, there are these two utopias, almost, right? But um, they represent a challenge to the patriarchy of the all-black town. And so they, um, the, the men of that town go in and cause harm to the women who've created this alternative space. And so I think that we have to always think of home maybe not as the home that we are born into. If it's a safe home, that's a good thing but that I think Morrison's fiction shows that it's about the creation of home, right? And that the creation of home is as much about creating that just society, right? Like, can we imagine um, the space that would be that safe space if it didn't happen to be the one that we were born into? But that's a really important question. Yeah. So thank you so much
3: mm-hmm. again just for gracing our center here, mm-hmm. our medical center. I just want to say that we're here in the nursing school this evening. We're usually across the street in the you know, in the faculty club. Mm-hmm. But in part because you're talking about care, yep. it's like a physical spatial way of our saying in the medical center that nursing has been particularly committed to care and that we all um, are happy to be the guests here of the nursing school. I just wanted to underline that. Yeah. And, and I, I'm also impressed that you started your conversation of bringing the ethics of care next to the ethics of justice. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, I, I don't know if this is outing, but Carol Gilligan is here, and mm-hmm. they want to say some things in in concert with right uh, what we've just undergone together
1: yeah well I did want to say that one of the reasons that I I was so happy to be in the school of nursing right um, and one of the things I wanted to emphasize was that each of the women each of those acts were an act of of nursing right that you know the from from the anonymous mother who comes in and cares to the fact that in many ways, you know, Cersei is a nurse, right, and that so is Miss Ethel, and that, um, and I think what was, you know, so great about Miss Ethel is that she has those dimensions of um, caring for the physical body, like first and foremost, right, seeing the urgent need of doing that, but then caring for the person and, and helping the person find their wholeness in themselves. So, it, to me, it so resonates with the project of nursing. Yeah, perfect space to have that in. But I'm honored to have you here. Thank you. I've been rereading your work. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I kind of see the concept of an ecology
4: of caring, mm-hmm. and in that beautiful essay, uh, Ms. Morrison mentioned the Amish, yep, which is so close to nature, yeah. and ironically the murderer was the milkman, mm-hmm. and, the and they asked the family, Yeah, and I wonder if you, is, it, is that a metaphor, <laughs>
1: kind
4: of, just the idea, <laughs> right. the,
1: college,
4: uh, the, the fundamental farm, agriculture, et cetera.
1: Yeah, she was um, so, I mean, I think that that was one of the things that made her start thinking about the language of goodness. I mean, the... The the enacting goodness throughout, you know, is there from the very beginning, and it's and it's presented in this heightened language, but it was actually that incident with the Amish that she um, really began thinking about how our society responds to goodness, part, largely because people were so baffled um, by that community's response to this act of violence, and you know, so it was the kind of, why are we so baffled, right? Why is it so foreign to us? Um, and here's a community for whom it's, you know, it's a practice that it isn't, you know, some people are better than others, but we can enact that practice. And I think that it was really that moment that it made, when she says it was that moment that made her begin to think about the kind of philosophical underpinnings to goodness and the literary language we attribute to it. And she says, evil in novels, you can always tell when evil comes, she says it comes with like a top hat. (laughs) And and goodness is just kind of quiet and he's assumed, right? Um, But that instance highlights goodness for her in some important ways. The other question about, I hadn't thought about the milkman, right? I mean, milkman in in the Morrison novel is a pejorative term because he's... um, he nurses his mother until he's five. (laughs) So someone sees it and calls him milkman, and it's a kind of embarrassing term. But, um, you know, I hadn't thought about those connections. I'm sure she saw that irony. Um, Yes. Thank you very much for your wonderful lecture.
5: I am a student here, and I'm from Japan. Mm -hmm. when I read uh, Charlie Morrison's novels, I am, uh, I, every time I am amazed by it, um ethical dimension, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, mm-hmm. but I, I also, at the same time, I feel a uh, uh, refusal um, from the novels. But it's probably because I am, I will never be black, mm-hmm. um, and I, I feel um, a kind of refusal to be understood mm-hmm. from me, mm-hmm. yeah, and this kind of refusal yeah. can happen in critical uh, institutions yes. too, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and this um, refusal, I feel this she feels a very strong me from her novels, yeah. and I wonder to um, for language for goodness, mm-hmm. racism might be a little practical too, practical, mm-hmm. or um, it, to be honest, it can be the power to uh, um, eliminate others. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. So, I, um,
1: yes <laughs> so, you some- sure of course yes. that's such an important question. Um, I think that you know there's some things that that she clarifies when you look at her, read her work closely and listen to her um, so the is it refusal you said you feel right so I think that um one of the things that Morrison says, when she says, um, I, I rejected the white gaze, I refuse to explain, mm-hmm. she's not saying that she rejects readers, mm-hmm. right? She's mm-hmm. saying that, um, you know, because all readers are welcome here, mm-hmm. right? So, um, it, it's it's the project of having to explain that she rejects, but that the reason why I love the idea of an ethics of care is because those moments where an ethics of care are being enacted in those novels are open to all of us, right? I mean, I think that the novels are simply saying, I'm going to write on these terms without explanation, which then opens up the universal and human possibilities, right? Right. That can be read trans historically, transnationally. I mean, and as someone who, you know, fell deeply, deeply in love with literature, reading about peoples and cultures, I had no familiarity with it all, but, you know, fell in love with Hamlet or whatever, right? Um, I think that that is a way that her fiction can be approached as well. So, and in the places where one feels refusal, I think it's. More refusal to explain humanity, right? That, that, um, that is often the burden of um, racially minoritized or, you know, people, writers, people who are writing from oppressed groups that they must explain. And she refuses to explain, right? But you're welcome, you know? So, I mean, it's, and there are those metaphors like, where she says, thick as alga syrup. Well, most people, many people don't know what alga syrup is, but you get a sense of, you know, a certain kind of southern black reader will know exactly what alga syrup is. But we know that it's something thick and rich and lovely, and so that's what the metaphor does for us. I, I think there is a welcoming, even in the refusal. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Keep reading her. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Hi. Um, I was really struck by how you talked about the
5: language of goodness, and I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could provide a uh, an example or two of moments in your quotidian life where you've seen that,
1: and you were just like, "Oh, that's that's language of goodness." Oh, wow. It's interesting. I mean, I can think of a million acts of goodness, right? But I'll tell you one that I think is language of goodness that doesn't um, announce itself as such in my quotidian life. So, um, my right? my um, my grandmother uh, was a you know southern black woman, and she would say when whenever there was a child who someone would say um, was either dreamy or you know daydream too much or maybe someone thought this child might grow up to be gay or something that, was gonna, that they saw as a problem. My grandmother's phrase was, it's one of my favorite phrases ever and she said, just let that baby be. <laughs> Which I think is so beautiful, right? Like, and I think, wow, that, if that governed our world, just leave people alone. Let them be. <laughs> you know, If they aren't causing any harm to themselves or others, just let them be. And then think about all the possibility and letting people just be, right? And so I think that, you know, it's not an, it's it's a very powerful phrase. Um, it's one that I carry with me all the time. Um, it's not elevated in prose like Morrison will do. <laughs> but um, for me, just on an everyday basis, I, I think that's one of those moments of, of goodness in language of, that, that contains within it. A way of being in the world, Um, but you'll find now. I find that having, you know, thinking about this, I see it. I look for it in literature all the time, and I see it particularly in her work, um, often in time where I did not see it before. But I find myself it's a kind of literary exercise of looking for it elsewhere, as much as I look for these moments of care and what and if they are connected to something else, right? Is is care connected to a pursuit of justice? Is care connected to grace or mercy or any of those things?
6: Yeah. Yeah. in the healthcare
5: profession we can use language for good is simply by naming our patients so for example i work in a children's er and instead of saying roommate or the sickler just to say the child with sickle cell
3: disease
0: Mm -hmm. and
5: name them as a child Mm -hmm. makes an immense difference because if they're a sickler then they're just doing what they do but if they're a child with sickle cell disease then we gotta get them better and yeah. get them home. Right. So I, I think the language we use when we communicate can make a lot of um,
7: progress towards that goodness. That's great, yes. Uh, I have a, a negative version of the language with the relationship I had um, when I, I'm French. So I came to America and I had a story with a musician guy very much traumatized, uh, coming from violence, drugs, Mm -hmm. alcohol, and so on. Mm -hmm. Of you know that. And he will hang out with his friends, and he will talk, fuck you, asshole, bitch, (laughs) that you all know. So I would say, you know, um, I'm not used to talk like that, you know. It would be nice if you can use other words, or... And I could see around him, everybody was using these words. So th- his answer was, this is the United States of America. We have freedom of speech. <laughs> yes. Who are you <laughs> to tell me how to talk? <laughs> and I could n- never convince him on that part. Mm-hmm. With all the effort, I spent 14 years with him, mm. uh, with all the love I could give. Mm-hmm. and I. It's a pattern when you are born uh, with an environment that never gave you love. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to change. Yeah. So what so, would be the solution? I oh, I, find I yeah,
1: I I have no solution to that one. But I, I think um, I you know I do I don't believe I believe in transformation and I believe it's possible um, and I believe and, and having having experience. Kind of, you know, similar, if not directed at me, certainly people who speak in that way. I've seen transformation happen, even with people like that, but um, it's not always possible. And at some point, one, you know, you also. I mean, I think this is what this is what Miss Ethel is teaching C, right? Miss Ethel says to C, like, "What will you stand for?" Right? And so, um, you know, she says, "The person you are now." Is not going to be treated in a certain way, right? Um, and so, you know, you've become this other person in terms of what you will tolerate, right? And so, I think that what you know, what you're saying is an example of at some point, it's it's intolerable, right? It's 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 that that's not the world I want to live in. That's not the language I want to hear. That's not the way I want to be spoken to. But I also find it quite devastating if people can't break out of that, because it's a, it's a harm-doing language, not only to the people who speak it, I mean, to the people who it's spoken to, but it also does harm to the people who speak it. But we are living in the moment of, you know, freedom of speech and all that that means. So, yeah, he's probably got a lot of fellow travelers right about that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for uh, for this wonderful talk. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, years ago I read this article, I can't remember who the author was, but it was called The Charm of Medicine. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the charm of medicine is that it's done in private. You know, medicines are powerful, but you don't need a community. Mm-hmm. And um, and so therefore, that's why people seek medication quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And with Morrison, you know, you're really talking about a community. Yeah effort to heal. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about the charm of medicine versus the charm of the community.
1: Well, in the novel, in the world of her, in the world of this novel, the private, what happens in private is what causes harm, right? Um, She. You know, I don't want to give much of the novel away. And, and, and really, I'm giving you like this is a side story. It's not, C's story is not the central story. Frank's story is the central story. But C's story, she works in a home of a wealthy doctor and his wife. Um, and, and, and there are these chambers, right? So there's the big parlor, and then they go downstairs, and there's um, a door, and behind the door is his laboratory, right? So there's a, there's a door behind the door that is his laboratory and it's in that closed off private enclave that even the other domestic servant doesn't know what he does there she has to speculate and, so, and, it's, and part of it is private so there are society women in the 1950s who come and they discreetly have abortions there um, but there's also great harm that happens in the context of the novel so I think that um, you know the novel is not in any way motivated by those charms of privacy, and that healing is not only a um, communal act; it's also it's also when that person is healed by the community, the community is then healed also, because all of those women um, have experienced harm. You no, know, they they all have experienced harm. Um, and so they quietly know what C they empathize with C and each time they bring a healed woman whole they're healing the community because she has to do some good in that world right? she becomes, and one of, the, one of the things that's beautiful about the novel is that there's a really hateful woman in the novel a really hateful woman who hates all these women and she becomes very sick and they all care for her And they care for her, they say, they know she hates them, right? They know that she looks down on them, but they don't want to meet their maker. And when asked, what did you do, say they didn't do anything. So, I mean, I think in the world of the novel, that's that's how it plays out. It might be different in real life.
6: As an addendum to the uh, discussion that we just had about changes in language with patients, I can say that I'm remembering now when I was a medical student and an intern and a resident, there were terms that were used by the doctors who were teaching us that were actually very derogatory terms about patients. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can say that I would never Imagine hearing those terms now, and I think there has been a very remarkable change in the medical community over the last 30 or 40 years with respect for the patient, Mm -hmm. and I I think it's the change from paternalism to Mm -hmm. more autonomy and shared decision making that has really made us feel much more on a par with patients Mm -hmm. than in the days of the 40s and 50s of paternalism, yeah. So I think in the medical field, there has been a great change. Yeah. And um, I, I guess I'm feeling proud about it now in some ways. Okay. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and if you know what oh, those
1: situations Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that in many professions, there have been important transformation and change um, that grow from kind of attentiveness to language and how we treat people. There's a beautiful documentary about the playwright Lorraine Hansberry, and um, there's and this isn't bad language. It's just a it's just a kind of protocol where um, she has an illness and the doctors tell her husband what it is, but they don't tell her. And when you um, and and you know when when that's said in the when you're watching the documentary, you can hear people like gasp in disbelief, right? That this was considered a best practice and that we've certainly moved beyond that, right? That, that there has been change in significant and important ways. So I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. Um, when I'm reading this book, Intimate Justice, about, um, it's not just about the forced sterilization, it's about a number of things. When I read the actual official language, um, the very fact that it shocks me says that there's been a change and transformation in the ways that you know doctors and patients confront and deal with each other and speak to each other. So you have something to be proud of. <laughs>
4: You know, when I was listening to your m- remarks and everything, it made me think of a portion of Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, mm-hmm. when he talks about how we are all woven together in a single garment of yeah. destiny. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, with all the terrible language and name-calling and that, um, like there's a push to make that kind of norm. Yeah. And the thing that I feel gratified by is to know that maybe I'll, I'll just use the name Trump's voice might be the loudest voice in the room, but thank God is not the only voice. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, eventually we, hopefully we're gonna see a shift. Yeah. But then I was wondering too that the whole concept of restorative justice isn't the flowers and candy the mushy love the way we think. No. But it's a more proactive, kind right. of powerful. Right you know, love to, to try to heal someone who hates you. Yeah. Yeah. And and because you're answering to a greater authority than what that person is trying to impose. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing a lot of parallels to that kind of dynamic now. Yeah. I just wanted to know what you thought
1: about that. Oh, you've I mean I couldn't say you said it you know, so beautifully and, and right. I mean it's um I, I read a you know in, in addition to reading um, Dr. Gilligan and reading um, I read a lot of King been reading a lot of King around this and a lot of Baldwin no. right and um, I think King and Baldwin you know and Morrison too I mean love is love is like forefront but it's not and I kept trying to say that it's not sentimental it's not easy it's it's difficult. It's, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's got transformative potential, but it's not kind of, Morrison is the most critical of, like, sappy, romantic notions of love. Like, she hates that, right? You read her, and you're just like, oh, my, my student, my poor, my poor undergraduate, like, she doesn't like love, you know? <laughs> but it's just that love that, you know, it, it, it's a hard love. Right, and it's um, it's a struggle, and it's human beings struggling together to try to get to a place where they definitely are not. And I think sometimes it's easier when I, when when I try to, and I am not a, I'm not an expert on restorative justice. I just am learning so much from the theorist of restorative, restorative justice. But sometimes it's easier to, I mean, to when I explain it, to think about societies that. Have to figure out a way to come back together after, after apartheid, after Bosnia, after Rwanda. Right? What are the processes by which, instead of thinking that it's two individuals, although it can be, but you know, those are the, that's the kind of um, work and that and King is thinking about in *Letter to Birmingham Jail*. That's exactly what he's thinking of. So, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Thank you for that
2: wonderful talk. You. <laughs> no, thank you. And you, just in the point that you're making now about love, when you quoted the line from Bluest Eye, which I also write about a lot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, where it starts with, Was it really like that, as painful as I remember? Because what she's saying is, she to remembered love. Yep. I mean, she remembered something. That was love as something that wasn't love. Right. And I think that's one of the most powerful things mm-hmm. in Morrison's writing is to kind of strip away yeah. a kind of way of talking about love and caring right. that is set, just what you said, sentimental mm-hmm. and really shallow. Yeah. And in some ways opposed to justice rather yes. than the, the embodiment of justice. Absolutely. And, uh, <clears throat> you no. know, I think. Um, Because those little girls, I mean, when they say, when I think of autumn, what I think is of someone with hands who doesn't want me to die. That's what love is. That's what love
1: is. Exactly,
2: exactly. I think that her, I'm really very grateful to you for this beautiful talk. Thank you. Is is a correction in Morrison Mm -hmm. on the subject of what is love and what is caring what's its relationship to justice, and also what's its relationship to gender. Yes. Because her women
1: are not stereotypical women. Not at all. I mean, you're, you're so right. I mean, they are not stereotypical women. It's, it's these, and, and these practices tend to happen in communities of women in Morrison, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. And I think she, she does that, you know, in The Bluest Eye, uh, the mother who really can't mother Pacola because she's so wounded herself, is incapable of love, of, of really loving her child, is the one who loves love stories and sits in the movie theater looking at romantic story, movies all the time. What's right? called? The
2: imitation. Of love?
1: Imitation. Right. She loves those, right? Or, um, or even in Sula where, you know, she says, you know, romantic love is the worst the idea, it's the worst idea that ever happened, and Sula's problem is when she's, like, romantically in love, and yet the real love is between Sula and Nell. So it's right, it's stripping away those easy notions of love. And we haven't even talked about the love. No, oh, that's it. And we will not. <laughs> Thank you. This woman's work is so meaningful to me. I hope you could hear it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so
6: much. Thank
1: you. Much. <laughs>